The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, resilient or ready to break? That is the question as stocks remain fragile ahead of tomorrow's big read on inflation. We are debating the road ahead for your money with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Josh Brown, Steve Weiss, Rob Seachin, and with me right here on set once again is Jenny Harrington. Let's go to the wall and check the markets here. We are red across the board, as Carl was just telling you. Not much conviction either way, because we've been all over the map already today. The VIX, as Carl said, 24. Oil and nat gas are both lower today, and that's been a fixation for investors and traders alike. There's the 10-year note yield. We'll call it 305. It's just a touch uh, below that level. It's going to be ugly but maybe a little less ugly than last time. That of the CPI, that from Ian Shepardson within the last hour. Our friend Mark Dow on Twitter posing a question for all of you, and I thought it was a good one, so I wanted to read it to you, and I want to hear your answers. And, Jenny, I'm going to read it to you first. Which result tomorrow on the CPI which would deliver a bigger absolute shock to the S&P 500? Surprisingly high inflation numbers or surprisingly low inflation numbers? In other words, which one are going to cause the S&P to move more? What do you think, Jenny? I think surprisingly high. All the conversation that I've been hearing from strategists and portfolio managers like over the last few weeks has been that inflation has peaked. So I think if it comes in a little higher than expected, a bit lower, a lot lower, all of those are within the cards of reasonable expectations. I think a lot higher, people would be like, uh-oh, you know, now we have a problem. That's where I think the market would move. Rob, Besides that, we're okay. Seach, is, is that how you see it too? Really, exactly. Um, you know, consensus expects the headline to be the same or higher with core inflation uh, decreasing. I think the market could break negatively on negative news. And frankly, we think there's a higher probability that's more likely to break down than uh, than rip higher. Why do you think that? Um, because the inflation that's in the system, Scott, we uh, we just see a, a lot of tension still out there with the war, with supply chain shutdowns, with increasing activity, with energy prices higher. In fact, stagflation risks are on the rise, and stagflation is a worse problem for the Fed than inflation, uh, than, than recessions. Uh, the Fed knows how to deal with recessions because they naturally decrease demand and inflation has a pullback. When you have stagflation, it's a problem that's, that you almost can't deal with. And so I think the markets would be really scared by any number that indicates that. Yeah. Weiss, I mean, you're, you're not getting really any inflation <clears throat> relief from the things that blare in the lights every day gas pump, grocery store, other areas that, you know, that have been really, really sticky wages, uh, for example. Yeah, things have rolled over lumber prices and some other things that, are, you know, people sort of focus on. But how, how would you answer Mark Dow's question? I'd say it's completely binary. If you get a lower than expected number, the market moves up, you know, maybe two, three percent. 
If you get a bad number, the market moves, moves down 2 to 3%. And we've seen those kind of moves. So I think it's equally balanced. But I'll tell you what my strategy would be if I were longer stocks. If it pops, I'd sell the market. And if it trades down, I'd still sell the market. And the reason being is that the market seems to be deluding itself. If you see this minor downtick in inflation that the Fed's all of a sudden going to put the brakes on, well, take a look at how long they overstay the inflation's transitory party. They are not going to make the mistake again of, of inactivity or slowing down their activity. Not until inflation is down the limit will they take their foot off the gas of QT. So that's why I say if it trades down, it's not a buying opportunity. It hasn't been a buying opportunity. It, you should still sell and go to cash. I don't know. I mean, if, if, it tra- if, it's, if it's lower than expectations, maybe, maybe it takes a little bit of the Fed's going to be even more aggressive conversation off the table. Certainly for, let's say, Weiss, like September, right? Maybe that says, okay, mm-hmm. it's going to trend in that direction. So they go 50-50. Maybe they go 25 in September. If it's hot, you're like, okay, 50, 50, and then maybe we're doing 50 or even more as the year progresses. You don't, you don't buy that? I don't buy it. Uh, you've, got a, you've got a few more numbers to come out between now and September. And look, we haven't seen the impact of China coming back into the market. They're just reopening now. So that's going to drive inflation up again. That may drive lumber up, although we're seeing you know, housing start to fall off. So that's a big reason for lumber coming down. So, no, I don't I don't buy it at all. Look, inflation is running as hot as it's run in the last you know, half century. So the Fed's got some heavy lifting to do. And then they're going to roll off the balance sheet. So you've got tightening monetary conditions anyway. And I think it's a mistake to try and get in front of it and hope that you're going to outguess the Fed and hope you can outguess inflation numbers. Nobody has. So why would anybody think they can at this point? The other thing, Josh, as you've heard this week is, you know, okay, all this discounting that Target and these other retailers are going to do is deflationary. Uh, Yeah, it may be, but it has no impact whatsoever on the kind of number you're going to see. As Datatrek research says today, quote, retailers could give clothes away for free and U.S. inflation would still be plus 5%. So that has no bearing on it. I'm wondering how you're gaming what the S&P could do either way. I think I think Dow poses a, a good question. Uh, Weiss thinks it's binary, right? You heard what what Jenny and, and Rob had to say, that it's really the risk to the downside big time if, if it's a disappointing number. What do you think? I think investor sentiment right now uh, is actually, I think if you talk to most people who are in the investor class, the 10% of Americans who own 89% of the stock market, they would tell you they would rather have a recession than have continued inflation. So I don't think there would be meaningful relief if we get a, a if we get a 7.9 versus an expected 8.1 on CPI. 8.3. I think small business owners, fine. Small business owners, executives who uh, run companies, they actually want uh, they want inflation down more than they want anything else. Uh, there's a survey taken recently. They asked people, are we already in a, in a recession? 43% of Democrats said yes. Uh, seven in 10 Republicans say we're already in a, in a recession. Do with that what you will. Uh, f- more than 50% of independents uh, said that they think we're already in a recession. We can handle economic slowdown mentally. Um, most of the people right now living and working in this economy were not adults in the 1970s. 
So all of what's going on is so completely outside of their scope uh, uh, in, in terms of what they've experienced, and they hate it. They hate it so much that even the fact that we added 1.3 million jobs in the last 90 days, it's like nobody even knows. People assume the economy's terrible because of their experience in having to pay for things. They just, they, that's the assumption right now. So uh, I think what I'm trying to say in terms of a market reaction, yeah, you could have a seven handle on that CPI number and see the Dow open up 600 points, but then what? Are you going to have two days of that? Probably not. So I agree with Mr. Weiss, uh, it, you know, from, from that standpoint, like, what do you do? You probably don't do much, you know, regardless of what the outcome is. See, I don't think there's a meaningful rally uh, that's going to come even from a, a, a way lower CPI than expected. I feel like, the Jenny, the, the strong second half narrative that some are, are speaking of is built on inflation having peaked, right? You can't have one without the other. The secular bull market story that some are putting forward, calling this a cyclical bear market, is built on inflation having peaked. So if the number comes in better than expected, that plays towards the much more bullish case, doesn't it? Because you would assume, and people, that's what we do, you assume that the trend is going to continue and then people would maybe be predisposed to start buying stocks again with some level of conviction. As I said, there hasn't been any conviction whatsoever. The market was due for a bounce. We got a bounce. It's not like everybody feels great all of a sudden because we got the bounce. It's still fragile. So I think the bear market, the bull market case, when you say it's built on inflation, I think that's just one leg of what it's built on. We also need to see multiples reconcile from the start of the year, the 21 and a half times earnings down to 16 and a half. Now we need to reconcile. Right, but is 16 and a half the right number? I'm not sure. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But we need to get to the right place there. We need to get to the right place where we know how consumers have shifted their spending. And we're in this really murky period right now. You could say people aren't spending, but they are. They're just spending on different things. They're not spending on goods, but they are spending on gasoline, and they are spending on services and trips and restaurants and experiences. So we're in this weird place where we're trying to figure this out. We need to figure out the geopolitical situation. That's very unnerving, what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. But the two but, most important things, I mean, so you've got two wheels on the bike. In order for the bike oh. to go, you need right multiples to be in the, in the right place. Mm -hmm. Right, Multiples have come down a lot. That tire looks pretty good with air now, right? Multiples have come down. Fair enough. But you need earnings to keep the other tire inflated. And if earnings are a disaster, bike's not going anywhere. Correct. And, and so I think we'll see a number of pre-announcements still. And we need to see what happens with S&P &P earnings, which right now I think expectations are for $249. I think those will come down. Too high. Right. 100% too high. But in the How past... High? How much too uh, high is the question? So in the past, when analysts have been way too high, it's 20% too high. I think we're more in the range right now of maybe they're 5% too high. Maybe they're 4% too high. We need to figure that out, but I don't think it's going to be a stunning number. So where I think we are is range-bound. I don't think it's time to sell everything. I don't think it's time to buy everything. You know, I've been saying pick things off strategically, chip away at things strategically, but I think we're range-bound because there's just a lot of noise to figure out. Even why those who are taking down their numbers seem really uh, reticent to do it by that much. Evercore today, they cut their mm -hmm. S&P target to 4,300 from 48 for obvious reasons. And they reduced their EPS mm -hmm. only down to $226 from 228. 
It's still plus eight and a half percent basically year on year. So we still have this hesitancy to bring down earnings by too much. The question is, are those people going to be right or are the ones like you who say earnings are still way, way, way too high and they need to come way down? And that ultimately is going to be the thing that breaks the market. Yeah, I I think that's right. I I think the market's broken already. But, yeah, we can talk about whether the multiple is right or not. But as you point out, what difference is the multiple if the earnings come down? So if the earnings come down, I think they will. And maybe it's only 5 or 10 percent. Guess what? If the the multiple then goes up, if the market stays where it is. So you're not there. So you've got to overshoot in the downside, as you do in most bear markets and most corrections, before you can get comfortable going in. And think of how ridiculous it is. That analyst is lowering their price target by more than 10% and lowering their, their forecast by 1%. How does that add up? What's the metric there? Was your price target originally too high? I don't know. But let's take a look. Some people are saying, hey, Target, they're putting things on sale. You mentioned earlier that's going to lower inflation. But look, that's only half the equation. Target says we're going to be back to our higher margins in the second half. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at a moment in time of getting rid of inventory. It can be sucked in. It won't move the needle on inflation. But for those, if that's part of their bull case, that a couple of retailers got caught with too much inventory, and that's why inflation's come down. Man, they're mistaken. And I'd love the market to go up on that because then I'd be more aggressive in shorting. Is anybody taking any comfort, Josh, in companies raising dividends, Target, Caterpillar? I'm going to get to you in a second, Jen. <laughs> I want to get the others involved, though, first. Um, there's a lot of insider buying going on. People point to buybacks. Any of that make a difference for you? Yeah, I was going to say, Jenny's going to jump out of her chair if you go to me on this first. She already tried. <laughs> if, I, if, I were, if I were setting a trap for Jenny, it would, be, uh, it, it would have a dividend under her shoebox That's right. that I could drop on her. All right. Uh, yes, listen, th- this, is, this is where, this is where uh, you get this value outperforming growth. You get this international, uh, which tend to have a higher dividend on average than U.S., so international outperforming. Um, J- Japanese stocks, especially infl- uh, uh, dollar-hedged Japanese stocks. Take a look at DXJ, about to make a multi-year breakout. Like all of that is playing into what you said. Uh, investors are now more concerned with the return of capital than the return on capital, and that thinking, that psychology, filters through to um, the way that they are rejiggering their portfolios and a lot of this volatility where it's like, oh, today the materials are leading. Oh, today, the, the next day, the materials are the worst performers and, and this is the best. There is no clear direction for anything other than oil. In fact, there are only um, three of the 11 S&P sectors above a 200-day. So it's, it's utilities and, uh, and, and it's energy and it's healthcare. And that's it. That's it. So that's where the trend is. It's in defensive stocks with good balance sheets, paying high dividends. A lot of them have come down. They've just come down less. They're less volatile on a daily basis. So that is what's working right now. And I think that's what should be working right now. If the psychology out there is, look, I don't need to make 5x on this on this stock. I just need not to be down 30% next month. So we're in that space. I don't think it's going to change. Nothing technically tells me that's going to change. Um, it doesn't mean you won't get volatility in the dividend areas. It's just that uh, the money is flowing there uh, on green days for the market, 
and we should expect that to continue mm-hmm. until something majorly shifts in in the in the uh, in the ongoing narrative out there. I don't know what would cause that, Jenny. So Josh said something really, really important that I don't want people to pass over, which he said people, they're focusing on return yeah, of I, I capital it down too. Yeah, versus return on capital. And what, what I love about this conversation is that we're having it. Actually, Target increased their dividend by 32% in 2021. They only increased it by 20% right now. Caterpillars consistently increased their dividend about 10% <clears> on <throat> average, except in tough years. But we haven't talked about that in a really long time. And the fact that we're caring about it and focusing on it now is enormous. As a professional investor, what this says to me is that rationality and focus on price and focus on valuation is re-entering our conversation. And we're making more rational, more coherent, functional decisions as investors. So, so this conversation is much more to me about, about the whole picture and, and what the market's doing now and what people are caring about than just these two stocks. Speaking of decisions that those people are, are, people are making in general, Rob Seachin, I want to go through some of these moves that you've made uh, because you're the most active person on the desk for this day. Um, you are doing what you call a rotation to quality strategy. You sold Bath and Body Works. You sold Evercore. You bought Eli Lilly and you bought Allison Transmission Holdings and you bought more Wells Fargo. Tell us. So we sold uh, we sold Bath and Body Works has good scores for quality valuation and but earnings growth has deteriorated uh, primarily due to margin erosion from labor costs, Scott, and higher raw material costs. And we rotated that into Allison Transmissions, where we see quality value in growth in the automotive segment. And they make uh, transmissions for machinery and heavy-duty military vehicles. So it's not one of the most exciting names, but it scores well in every category, from valuation to earnings quality to margin stability, free cash flow yield, et cetera. And it's, and it's pretty cheap. In terms of Evercore, um, you know, again, it, it doesn't score that badly, but what we wanted to do was add to our Wells Fargo position, which we initiated on the show on 516, and it's done well since then. And at nine times um, this year's earnings, 1.1 times book, uh, 25% operating margins, we think it's one of the highest quality diversified banks. And it's going to continue to benefit from loan growth rising net interest margins and good cost management. So what I think I would say is there's a lot to do in this type of market environment. When you're rotating into quality, even though we're negative, right, we think this is a bear market bounce, but we define quality in three ways. Uh, Resiliency, because they can still grow their businesses. They don't have to rely on external funding that's now expensive. They're resourceful because they have the flexibility to be opportunistic and deploy capital at more attractive valuations. And they're reasonable because they aren't trading at egregious multiples that are susceptible to compression in a tighter liquidity environment. And when you talk to our CIO, Cameron Dawson, you talk to our head of research, Bill Inglis, we're not sitting on our hands. We're outperforming in difficult market environments by being active and rotating the portfolio. Mm. Okay. It's working. Yep. All right. Good stuff. Up next, check out this mystery chart. It's a stock that's down 15 percent this year. Our Josh Brown just bought it. He's going to tell you what his new buy is. Jenny is also looking at the name. Maybe Josh will sway her. To do it now, we will reveal it and debate it next.
Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, we showed you the mystery chart. Before the break, it is FedEx, the stock reiterated by at City. It's one of our calls of the day. Josh Brown, tell us, you just bought it. Yeah, I probably won't sway Jenny because this is technical. Um, I think the stock's been trying very hard to find a bottom for most of the last uh, nine months. It appears as though the buyers uh, are willing to show up in the mid-190s. That's about 10% lower than where she trades today. Uh, so that's where my stop goes. I don't have an upside target. Um, I think that there's the potential to break out above 220, which it's flirting with right now, snap that downtrend. And then what I would do is I would ride it higher and roll my stop up systematically. Every Friday, take a look at the weekly close and make that determination. I don't want to own it if it does break below that recent support. Um, I know that the uh, city analysts that we're going to talk about put out uh, – a note talking about there's a tactical opportunity here because there's their first investor day in 10 years. I don't think they would call it investor day for the first time in a decade if they wanted to let everyone down. So it seems likely they'll put some long-term targets out there, possibly reaffirm this year's guidance, maybe even talk about increasing the dividend. Some of those things should be good enough for this stock to have held that support. Um, and, you know, again, I think we're in this bear market rally as well. I know uh, I've been saying that for a long time. Maybe it gets boring, but that doesn't mean there aren't shorter term opportunities and things that you can do if you want to. So fundamentally, if they can earn $20 a share over the next year and they can affirm that guidance, I don't see any reason why this stock couldn't trade 13, 14 times um, that number. That would put it about 250 and I'd be happy with 20% upside for the potential of 10% downside risk. Mm. I mean, technicals can be as good a reason as any to buy a stock. Um, he's making it clear that it's not necessarily for a extraordinarily long period of time that he may own it. But nonetheless, 
What do you make of it? Well, I love that this has two different sides. You can look at it technically and find a good reason to own it, and you can look at it from a fundamental perspective and also find a good reason to own it. So what I love about this conversation is this would not be for the dividend portfolio. This would be for our discipline growth portfolio. And what we're talking about now is we are talking about real growth companies. So I think we've confused what growth companies are over the past couple of years. We've thought of growth companies as those with share prices that just go up and up and up. But FedEx actually has earnings that go up and up and up. And they're not in stra- at stratospheric levels. They're at reasonable levels. So now you get this huge discount, 40% off. It's trading at 12 times. It's got decent earnings growth ahead. It's achievable. It's a fantastic company that we all know. And it's critical to our everyday life. <laughs> so if you, if you believe all of that, mm-hmm. right, you're making a fundamental case to own it. Yeah. Does Josh's technical take sway you to do it now? No. Why no. not? It's just not our process. And every portfolio, has to, portfolio manager has to be true to and disciplined to following their process and not straying from it. So sometimes the technicals make you speed up on your process, but you still need to go through it. And mm. you still need to look at it and say, what are the earnings here? How much does this make sense? And what do I have in the portfolio that isn't going to grow as fast? So last week when we talked about selling Amgen and buying Uber, right? Mm-hmm. Amgen was still growing. We just thought Uber could grow more. So now we'll look at FedEx and say, is there enough growth and capital appreciation in the shares that makes it a replacement for something that we currently own. Got you. Weiss, you used to own FedEx, right? Yep, yep. And and I've been trading it. Hits 200 or, or below, as Josh points out, and I buy it. Frankly, I just missed it this time. And I do believe, look, you've got a new CEO. You've got the first investor day, analyst day in 10 years. They're not coming on to say, hey, you know, we're cutting our earnings by 10%. Right, things are horrible. Right. Right, right. So it's going to be an inauguration, and those are generally celebratory. The only question I have is, how much is in the stock already? And if I were to buy it, there is a one-to-one correlation pretty much with UPS. So from Jenny's standpoint, if I were her, I'd be looking at UPS for the dividend portfolio with a much higher yield. Look, I like the fundamentals. Freight, Freight prices are up there. The question is, when you go into recession, undoubtedly, those prices are coming down. So I want to know how much they have in their guidance for that eventuality. Jenny? On UPS? Yeah. Um, So the dividend portfolio has a 5% or better hurdle. So even though UPS is juicy, it's not juicy enough for me. So we're not looking there. But part of the investment process, too, is to say FedEx, UPS, which is better. We also already own GXO and XPO. Would that give us too much concentration to logistics? So that's all part of the conversation. I mean, because UPS has outperformed Mm -hmm. FedEx on a wide number of of stock metrics. Right. Um, And so this is where I go back to when the decision was made a couple years ago for the growth portfolio, what do we own? XPO, mm-hmm. which then became XPO and GXO, right, which FedEx, UPS. We looked at all of those and we said, how do we want to play this space? And what we wanted to do was we wanted to, we wanted to invest in XPO because that was management of the supply chain in a very, very high growth manner. Mm. Now, yeah, UPS has, has um, outperformed them. GXO, XPO, FedEx have all been kind of lousy this year. But they're great companies. And I, I think... As someone watching the show, I honestly think you could kind of own any of these, and I think you could have a really long time horizon. Okay. You're going to get bobs and weaves along the way, but I bet you you look back in 10 years, and any one of these four companies has made a great investment for you. Oh, we got to wait 10 years. All right. <laughs> we'll wait. All right, still ahead. No, it's a no sector- you don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sector that's up 11% in the past month alone. Is this the beginning of a bigger breakout, and how much higher can it go from here? We will reveal the trade and, of course, discuss and debate it next.
you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Halftime. Let's head to Bob Pisani now. He is at the Piper Sandler Global Exchange and FinTech Conference with a special guest that I just tweeted about, Bob. Good stuff. Yeah, very excited to talk to Sam Bankman-Fried, the CEO of FTX. Of course, this is the Piper Sandler Conference, as you heard from, uh, it's heard there just recently. Important thing is, all of the exchanges want to interact with the crypto community, but there's been issues out there. There's been regulatory issues. We're trying to clear that up now. Sam, thanks for joining us. You've been regaling us this morning with stories about the crypto community. Let's just talk about the 30,000-foot view here. Where are we right now with crypto? Valuations have pulled back rather dramatically. Why have they pulled back? And are we at some kind of bottom? Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, I think if you look at what, you know, Bitcoin has done since the peak, it's very similar to what NASDAQ has done. They're both down, you know, about 50% roughly from where they were, you know, eight months ago, which I think tells you a lot about what's happened um, to crypto, to tech, and to markets in general this year. It's all been driven by monetary policy. It's all been driven by expectations, driven by the Fed of increased interest rate, which has caused basically a dollar rallying and, you know, depreciation of everything else against that. Yeah. Are you blaming all this on the Fed? I mean, Bitcoin's had huge moves up before, long before the Fed moved in. So we've had bubbles in Bitcoin before. Oh, we absolutely have. And some of those have clearly been driven by crypto specific flow. This one in particular, I think, was mostly driven by the Fed. I don't know if it's good or bad. Maybe it had to happen. One of the reasons the exchanges have been reluctant to interact with the crypto community has been the uncertainty around the regulatory yep. situation. Now, Senators Gillibrand and Loomis just introduced the bill, and it looks very clear to me that the CFTC in their bill is going to be the primary regulator. The crypto community seems very happy about that. They seem to have soured a little bit on Chairman Gensler at the SEC. What's your evaluation of this bill? Is this good for the crypto community? So I think like getting regulatory clarity is huge, and I think it's good for everyone. I think it gives customer protection that we're missing right now, real federal oversight, protection against financial crimes, against systemic risk, and at the same time, allows the industry to move back onshore and bring real liquidity to U.S. markets. So I think it's a win-win to have federal oversight. You know, from my perspective, look, it could come from the SEC, it could come from the CFTC or some combination. The important thing is that it happened. So I, I welcome the efforts, you know, from, from you know, the cinema, you know, Joel Brand, or, uh, sorry, the, the Lums, Joel Brand effort there, you know, the, the efforts that I know, you know, a number of other people have been putting in. To this. Is, is the CFTC a more sympathetic audience, do you think? The crypto community seems to think so. So they've certainly had more experience, I think, with the asset class. When you look at, you know, Bitcoin futures have been live on CFTC venues for a few years. So I think that they've built up a lot of knowledge about the industry. And I think they've been engaging a lot with the uh, industry and community over the last you know, year or so and, and have built up some sympathy there. 
you know, again, in the end, what matters to me is the policy rather than whatever agency is behind it. But I definitely think that they've been taking a really constructive approach. My colleague Scott Wampner has a question. Scott. Hey, Sam, it's good to have you uh, on our program. And, and to note, I mean, you, you're speaking now directly to a pretty hardcore investor and, and trader of viewership. And, and I want to ask you a question along those lines as to whether you think uh, some of the claims made by by people, um, some of the more grandiose, if you will, claims about Bitcoin that let's say it's, it's going to replace the dollar or some of the other things that we've heard uh, have hurt the legitimate case for Bitcoin. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's absolutely true. And I think that in general, you know, it can be tempting in the moment to try and claim you know, everything under the sun, but that's not going to reflect well in the end. And I think it's a lot more productive to claim what is actually there. And there, I think there's a ton that blockchain and crypto can help with in terms of modernizing settlement payments, transfers, having real stores of value, especially in countries that don't have good ones right now. Um, but I think claiming that every new cryptocurrency is going to transform some new area of the world undersells the legitimate case. Mm, interesting. So when, when, people, when people say, sorry, Bob, I just wanted to follow up if I could real quick. Um, when people claim, for example, it's a, a store of value, how do you respond to that? Yep. Do you think it is? I think it, there are a lot of stores of value. I think it's one of them. You know, gold has been for a long time. I think you can think of Bitcoin like, you know, gold-like product, but, but natively digital, easier to store and move around. That doesn't, you know, maybe it will go up, maybe it will go down. That's going to depend on how much demand for, uh, for it there is. But I think it is a potential store of value, and it's a nice, easily accessible one, which has a lot of advantages globally. I have to ask you about the Luna UST yep. debacle. We have a situation here where we had an asset that was supposedly a stable coin that yep. turned out to be anything but a stable coin. Yep. Without reliving that whole saga, yep. what's the moral there? What, what's the takeaway and what do we need to do to make sure that those kinds of unfortunate incidents don't happen? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the problem, as you said, was, look, one thing you could mean by a stable coin, what I usually mean is, you got you know, 50 billion tokens and there are 50 billion US dollars sitting in a bank account bagging that. You can redeem them one to one. That's the cleanest version of a stablecoin. What UST was, it, it was called a stablecoin by some, but what it actually was, there were a lot of tokens and it was backed by a volatile asset. And that asset went down in price and then the quote unquote stablecoin went down in price. That wasn't a stablecoin. And so what I think we need basically is federal oversight and transparency that makes sure that you can only call something a stablecoin if it is actually backed one-to-one buy stable assets. Otherwise, call it what you like, but it's not stable. But it's, by stable assets, you mean a real currency, or would it, could it be backed by Bitcoin? What's a stable asset to you? You know, you could have something which is backed one-to-one by Bitcoin. Its price will then reflect that of Bitcoins. And maybe that's a good thing, maybe that's a bad thing, but you shouldn't call that a $1 stable coin. You should call that a tenth of a Bitcoin asset or whatever. Yeah. Scott's got one more question there. Scott. Yeah, I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm looking at the markets and you know, over the last few days or, or, or weeks, I've noticed, and I don't know if it's a longer-term trend or not, and I'd love to get your perspective on it, uh, this correlation of Bitcoin with the NASDAQ, uh, for example, yep. looked like it had broken down. How do you view that? Yeah, so I think that there's a really strong correlation through the initial drop-off because, again, it was driven in both of them by interest rate expectations in basically the same way you move in the dollar as that gets more priced into markets, and you've seen Bitcoin sort of stabilizing around 30K over the last few weeks, and it's less, you know, 
it's not now it's not always the Fed driving moves. Now there's sort of all these idiosyncratic factors around, you know, the war in Ukraine, around supply chain shortages, around regulation that are coming out that that move them in different directions. And so, you know, whenever the Fed is dominating news cycles, I think you're going to see higher correlations. And when it's not, you're going to start to see that correlation drop down and them act more independently. Sam, don't be a stranger. We love you here on CNBC. Come around, talk to us more often about your thoughts. A lot of other things to talk about, uh, about the whole Bitcoin ecosphere. We haven't even gotten into uh, your whole clearinghouse story yep. here, which is a separate business. We're going to have you back on to talk about awesome. that. Very interesting idea. Even Terry Duffy, very interested in that from the CME. Sam Bankman-Fried is the CEO of FTX. Scott, back to you. Yeah, appreciate that very much, Bob. It's a nice surprise uh, for us. That's Bob Pisani and Sam Bankman-Fried joining us. Let's get the headlines now with Frank Holland. Hi, Frank. Hey there, Scott. Here's our CNBC News update at this hour. The FBI arresting Michigan Republican gubernatorial candidate Ryan Kelly on unspecified charges, and agents are now searching his home. This comes after Kelly attended the January 6th insurrection, where he was seen yelling, this is war, while moving towards the Capitol. <coughs> Excuse me. The arrest is the latest chaotic turn in the race for governor of Michigan, in which several Republican candidates have actually been blocked from running over submitting fake signatures on their nominating petitions. A source telling NBC News, that Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger will testify publicly before the January 6th committee later this month. Raffensperger met with the committee this past November after he was pressured by former President Donald Trump to quote-unquote find votes in order to overturn Joe Biden's victory. Catch the first time, first primetime public hearing tonight, <coughs> excuse me, live on CNBC right after the news at 7 p.m. Eastern. And police in Arizona have arrested a teen after he allegedly threatened to commit mass shootings. At a local high school, police station, and movie theater, authorities say the teen threatened family and friends and also praised the recent school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, in online comments. That's the very latest. Halftime Report will be back after this. Biotech, it's up 11 percent in a month, and Fundstrat's Mark Newton says its outperformance is a welcome sign for health care. Let's trade it. Josh Brown, this is your fat pitch from a few weeks back. Yeah, I still have not pulled the trigger, but I see what he sees, which is uh, higher lows. Higher lows are a very important step if you're trying to say whether or not you've seen the worst of something in a, in a given stock or, or sector. So I think you're starting to see the beginning of that. Um, too, too soon for me to pull the trigger, but I would tell you, if I were to, I would probably be focused more on IBB, which is overweighted toward the largest companies with the best balance sheets, some of which even pay dividends uh, in biotech. The XBI would probably trail it if we're still in this mode of people focused more on quality, um, but would directionally uh, give you the same, you know, the, the same move if, in fact, the biotech sector breaks out. But the XBI is 40 stocks, each of them equal weighted, and that gives a lot more participation to small cap growth biotechs, which, quite frankly, I don't think are going to outperform their larger cap, more stable brethren. So I would focus on IBB if I were to take the trade. I haven't yet. I'll keep you guys posted. OK, Steve Weiss, you play this still through Moderna only? Yeah, and the numbers keep coming in pretty well. Moderna's actually done fairly well relative to the other stocks and relative to the market since it bottomed out uh, at 120 or so. So, yeah, so I still like the platform. All the news has been good. There's been nothing negative. And I've got a company that's selling for about, you know, two times, three times earnings and $25 billion in cash. So I don't mind waiting for the trials to go through for cancer, for RSV, for we had some good news on Omicron uh, booster. 
So and we'll have the, the quadrivariant hopefully next year at some point, which is flu, it's, it's uh, COVID, it's RSV, and it's H1N1. So look, so I still like it. Look, I, I, I like biotech. But for, as Josh points out, the younger companies, the newer companies are going to have a tough time with financing. So you got to play a basket of them to make sure that you're that you're protecting your risk. OK, up next, AMD is meeting with analysts today. That stock's up 17 percent in a single month. Plus, all June, we are celebrating Pride Month. Here's Ina Fried, Axios chief technology correspondent. To me, Pride Month is all about celebrating all the work that has been done to get us to this moment, all the people who fought, sometimes with their lives, so that we have a chance at equality. And it's also a reminder that there is so much work still to be done. I am so proud of the next generation of trans and non-binary youth. They are fierce, they are happy, they are thriving, and they've had a chance to have a childhood in their gender, which is amazing and has really changed the game. AMD shares lower this week ahead of its analyst meeting today. That's going to be closely watched. Seach, you don't own AMD. You probably wish you did instead of – look at him. He knows exactly where this is going. You see He's it? taking the heat for me. <laughs> Intel, that's what you own. Look, it looks like I lost the, the, the coin toss with Jenny on this one. Um, <laughs> listen, <laughs> Intel has slightly outperformed the semi-index, so, but it's still getting brutalized year to date. I think a lot of that has to do with execution. A lot of that has to do with the, the, the PC market kind of melting down. Um, but when we look at it from a fundamental score standpoint, Intel is pretty consistently at the top of the list. You could say that's the definition of a bear trap. But um, the reality of it is that we, we do think there are at these price levels some protections in, in, this, in, in owning this name. And it's a modest position for us. I mean, it's, it's cheap relative to the sector at nine and change times. So anyway, we're not always going to get it right just based on the fundamentals. And this is one that we clearly got wrong. Mm. Uh, Josh, you own NVIDIA. Yeah, I own that, too. <laughs> well, I, it's too late. You already lost your chance. Well, look. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, NVIDIA, NVIDIA is high octane. It always has been. It always will be. This is uh, this is a stock that, you know, if, if you blindfolded me and told me how much the, the semis would be down year to date, how much the Nasdaq would be down and what the average VIX level would be this year. This is about what what I would have guessed. Uh, down 40, 50 percent from the high at its worst. Uh, that being said, this is another area where potentially we're starting to see um, uh, higher lows, meaning like on the down days, doesn't seem to go down quite as much as it used to. Uh, and maybe that's a constructive first step. But I'm a long termer. I'm a, I'm a long term investor here. I have no plans to make any moves based on any particular one day or one week's trading experience. As an investor, I just have to accept that sometimes buying a high-octane high stock means the other investors who are in the stock with you uh, don't, don't, don't have the sand okay. uh, to stick it out. But that's okay. All right. Ask Halftime's coming up next. Send your questions uh, by video. We'll play it on the air. You can email us, askhalftime at cnbc.com, and we're back right after this. Here's a tip for your money, your future. Contributing to your 401k, even when the market is volatile, allows you to continue to take advantage of dollar cost averaging. 
you're investing your money in equal portions at regular intervals, no matter how the market is doing. And that means when the market is going down, you're buying more shares with the same amount of money. And when the market recovers, you have more shares going up. So you're also not risking a lump sum all at once. For CNBC, I'm Sharon Epperson. We are answering your questions now, and we have one from John in Chicago. He asks, should you buy Alibaba? And that, that's not John Nigerian, even though he bought Baba Calls late Wednesday, just to make sure everybody knows that. Uh, Steve Weiss, I've been kind of hesitant to talk about these stocks uh, for obvious reasons, right? They could go up 50% in a minute. They could go down 50% the next. But this notion that maybe things are cooling in terms of the environment, the regulatory environment, and whether these are worth a a chance at this point. Your take on that is what? Well, the regulatory environment may be cooling in China, although they they backtracked or they came out and said news reports on letting an anti-IPO were wrong. However, what hasn't cooled is the regulatory environment here. And you have to take a look at what Gensler is trying to do now with, with trading and the buying of order flow. So he's all about investor protections. You can't invest protect, protect investors unless you require these Chinese companies to go through the same rigorous disclosure that U.S. companies do and other foreign companies do. So right now, it looks like they're still going to be delisted. You're going to get ripped off because they rip you off anyway, even in good times. So I just wouldn't go near them. Josh, would you, would you ever buy the K-Web again? No, I, th- I, I think if they, are, if they are putting the very question of the structure of these securities on the table on a regular basis politically, you can trade these. Uh, I think a lot of them offer great trading opportunities. I would only ever do it in a basket, something like a K-Web. I would never again flat out buy an individual name mm. uh, because the management of every one of these companies – could sit at a conference, blurt out the wrong thing, and have their stock taken to zero. There's enough risk in regular stocks. Like, why do you need more risk? It's not like historically these things have outperformed. They've underperformed. So more risk, less potential reward, and a new dimension of risk, like the ability of of a political functionary or a bureaucrat to put their thumb on, on a stock you own. I just... I feel like you want to trade them, not invest them, and opt for a basket, not pick one individual name. If you can, if you can avoid doing that, you're probably better off. Mm. All right. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back with final trades next. All right. Four o'clock Eastern time, just three hours from now. We've got DocuSign earnings in the overtime. So you've got to catch those. Adam Parker, Stephanie Link. Stan Druckenmiller's at Sone today, by the way. We're going to have headlines from him, uh, which are always interesting to get, whether it's about individual names that he may talk about or certainly the market environment at large. I hope you will join me in overtime, 4 o'clock Eastern. Let's do final trades first. Jenny Harrington, you are up first. Having just concluded my visit to the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trust Conference, I'll give you Sabra. It is a healthcare REIT. It has an 8.5% yield. It's a really terrific management team, and I think they're just getting back on stable footing. So now's the time to buy it. All right. Good stuff. Rob Seachin, what do you got? Eli Lilly. Fundamentals are great. The company has low debt, high cash, 30% operating margins, healthy free cash flow. It's best in class. Um, Bottom line, I think it's going to be a great stock. Okay. Steve Weiss. 
cash, but here's what I do. If the market really sells off tomorrow, I would buy FedEx for a trade into the, uh, into the management meeting. That's the only thing that you're, you would buy on a, on a big CPI dip? Well, you need a catalyst. I don't think you, it's worth, buy, worth buying stocks without a known catalyst. And that may not even be a perfect route because you've got the Fed meeting coming up on the 14th and 15th before the analyst meeting. Yeah, no, good point about that, too. We're going to be talking about that quickly. Uh, Josh Brown. ChargePoint had a huge rally on a big deal with the National Electricians mm -hmm. uh, Union. And it's flat after that, digesting it. That's, that's very positive. All right, does it for us. I'll see you in a few hours. The exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.